Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Uh, David, this is the second uh, of a two-part series on think tanks. Uh, we spent the first one talking uh, to the Fraser Institute, who recently um, uh, partnered with uh, Ames. And today we had a very detailed and fascinating discussion with uh, Brian Lee Crowley, who is the managing director and, more importantly, the founder of the McDonnell Laurier Institute in Ottawa. Yes, and he spent what, nearly 20 years in Atlantic Canada as uh, two times as head of the Atlantic Institute for American Studies and the founder of Ames. So, um, yeah, it's a very inter- interesting discussion with Brian Lee uh, Crowley, and uh, I think it'll be of, of interest to our listeners. You know, Brian's probably one of the most interesting people I've met in my life. Uh, he's, uh, he's had a very interesting career working for governments, working for academia, founding two uh, think tanks, um, you know, even working for the Parti Québécois <laughs> while they were in office on electoral uh, and, uh, reform. Uh, he's uh, fluently bilingual, by the way. Uh, when he was in Halifax, he operated a, 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 a restaurant with his wife. I mean, he's a very interesting guy. And uh, he's, not, he's not shy about uh, sharing his opinions. Um, and I guess if you're running a, th- a think tank, it's what you need to do. Yeah, he's smart as a whip. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I remember when I came back to New Brunswick in the early 90s and, and stumbled across their work. I, I couldn't believe there was a, a right-leaning think tank in Atlanta, Canada, like Ames. Um, but uh, certainly, I think it added a lot of credible research and uh, analysis uh, to the public policy thinking in Atlanta, Canada while he was here and while that organization was successful. And I guess you sat on the board twice, so you had an inside view uh, of what that organization was doing and the research it was providing to the region. Yeah, and Brian was, um, as the leader of Ames, was a special, uh, had a special skill set. Uh, not only was he um, uh, a very good and is a very good researcher, but he was also a very good fundraiser. And uh, that combination is very hard to find uh, for that kind of role. And he did that very well while he was with Ames. And, uh, and you know, he took those skills to Ottawa and, and, and you know, he's created a very successful think tank, a, a bigger think tank, uh, more focused on national interest, of, of course, and more more focused on the federal government and what the federal government needs to do. I think int- uh, listeners will be very interesting uh, at the end of our conversation where he goes into uh, some detail about the challenges that uh, China presents to, to the world and to Canada and uh, has a few opinions that are, are worth listening to on that topic. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people in Atlantic Canada, uh, you know, there's a sense that our feelings get hurt easy. Uh, <laughs> and of course, uh, Brantley Crowley doesn't mind hurting feelings. He did talk uh, in our discussion about uh, his perception of victimhood uh, as a cultural uh, um, 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 issue in our region. And I think there's some truth to that. I mean, I maybe would not go quite as far as he does, but he does talk about that. And then his views on equalization, I think are going to be equally controversial, although he has, uh, his thoughts are well researched and well thought out. And I think he's got a lot to say, importantly, on issues like equalization. Well, he uses the word victimhood. I use the term culture of dependence, you know, it's so it's, it's, 
six of this, half a dozen of the other, I suppose. But it, it, it's in this, you know, it has a lot to do with cultural uh, uh, problems that we have in our uh, region towards uh, being more uh, economically successful, I guess. Anyway, uh, we, it's a long interview, so uh, we're not going to we're not going to spend the time uh, too much more time on the introduction. And uh, I think it's uh, I think people will enjoy this uh, very uh, thoughtful, interesting conversation with uh, Brian Lee Crowley. Here it is. In this episode of the Insights Podcast, we continue to look at the important role that think tanks play in society in terms of informing public policy. Our guest today is Brian Lee Crowley, the Managing Director of the McDonnell Laurier Institute based in Ottawa. Brian is well known in Atlantic Canada as the founding president of the Atlantic Institute of Market Studies. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Don and David, it's great to be here. Brian, let's start by finding out a little bit about the path that has led you to your current role with the McDonald Laurier Institute. I remember when you were at Ames and I, I had studied in the U.S. I studied university and went to university in the U.S. and I came back and I had actually studied public choice theory and Austrian economics and the whole business. And I came back to find a think tank in Halifax uh, talking in those terms. So a very, very interesting for me to read the, the work coming out of Ames. You've had a very interesting career beyond that, including as an advisor to the Parti Quebecois government on parliamentary and electoral reform. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your career path uh, uh, up till today? Well, uh, uh, that, uh, a detailed discussion would probably take us all the time we have uh, and more. Um, I'll just say that, um, you know, uh, I spent a long time working in the public sector. I was um, I was a policy analyst for the clerk of the executive council in the Manitoba government. I worked for the Quebec government, as you mentioned. I was a parliamentary intern in Ottawa. Then I, you know, I I, I got a wonderful scholarship to go and uh, do my graduate studies in uh, in London. So I was at the London School of Economics for five years and. Um, you know, I, uh, I came back and um, ended up uh, uh, getting a university teaching job in uh, Halifax. I was, I was uh, at Dow. And um, I, I, I have to say that I thought that universities were institutions in decline. I, I, I felt that uh, while I had greatly benefited from uh, universities over the years, that they were increasingly being taken over by a rather destructive uh, ideology, which uh, I, I felt was not very helpful. And uh, so I kind of bailed from the university, gave up tenure uh, and um, uh, got into the think tank world and started, uh, started the Atlantic Institute for Market Studies in Halifax. After Ames, where did how did was it a straight line to the the McDonald uh, Laurier Institute, or was was there were there stops in between? Oh, there were there were a few stops in between. I, I took a two year leave of absence uh, from the institute, and I was on the editorial board at the Globe and Mail, uh, and uh, so um, as the then editor in chief uh, of uh, of the Globe, uh, William Thorsell used to say. Uh, you know, uh, we were writing the first draft of history every day, uh, sort of looking at what was happening and uh, and um, analyzing it and um, sharing our thoughts with the with the public. Um, so I, I did that for two years. Um, 
enjoyed it, but really thought that, uh, you know, the think tank world was where I was best suited to be. And so I came back to Ames and, um, and then, uh, uh, oh, a number of years later, I took a second leave of absence and I was the, uh, I was the Clifford Clark visiting economist at the Department of Finance in Ottawa. And the, 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 the visiting economist uh, has the rank of an assistant deputy minister. And it's kind of, you're the one man in-house think tank and policy gadfly for the <laughs> federal government on everything uh, to do with, uh, with economic policy. Uh, and, um, you know, I started, for example, um, uh, I, I completely revamped the pre-budget uh, consultation process for the, for the minister. And then, you know, we started a series of summer retreats for him with, uh, you know, economic leaders uh, from around the country and um, just uh, had quite a, a fabulous time, actually. Uh, I learned a lot about uh, the way that Ottawa uh, tries more or less successfully to manage the national economy. And, um, I, I like to think I, I brought some useful, uh, insights back with me. And then, um, uh, I, I came back to, to the Institute to, to Ames and, but I, I kind of got bit by the, the Ottawa bug because it had always been my ambition to, to start a national think tank. I thought, you know, the, the regional think tank that we started in Halifax was terribly important for Atlantic Canada. And I was there for almost 20 years. So I sort of felt I'd, 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 I'd given at the office <laughs> uh, <laughs> with respect to Atlantic Canada. And it was it was time to um, to move on to um, uh, starting a national think tank. And uh, so I uh, I left uh, to get. McDonald Laurie Institute going in Ottawa. I'm a fan of the Institute's work. And in general, I'm a fan of think tanks, the idea of concentrating intellectual horsepower uh, on the public policy issues of the day or the challenges of the day is very important. Um, but I don't know if all Canadians understand really the, the role of think tanks. So why do you think they're important and why, why should people uh, listen to what think tanks like yours have to say? Well, you know, as I'm always saying to the people who work with me at the Institute, we're in the ideas business. And the reason I say that is because, in my view, ideas are the most powerful force in the world. You know, uh, Victor Hugo uh, once said that uh, ideas are more powerful than all the armies in the world. And the reason that he said that is because, you know, with an army... You can, you can do certain things. You can make people do things they don't want to do by sending your army marching into their country. Yeah. Uh, but if you can put an idea in people's heads that makes them change what they believe, it makes them change what they think, then they change their behavior without you having to force it on them. On the contrary, they do it willingly. They do it because they believe in something that, you know, in an idea that you share. And so... Um, ideas are, are vastly more important, vastly more powerful than coercion and armies and police and all those uh, nasty things that force you to do things. Uh, and so if you think that um, uh, public policy is not doing everything that it might, if you think that the country uh, is being held back, for example, by poor quality public policy, 
Uh, my view is that the best way to do that is to sit down with people and have a discussion about, you know, well, why, why might we agree that things are not everything they might be? And could we reach some agreement on how that might be improved? And that's, you know, for me, that's at, at bottom, that's what think tanks are for. Their, their whole job, we, as we say at the McDonald Laurie Institute, we say our job is to make bad public policy unacceptable. Uh, and, you know, the way you do that is by getting the, the smartest people in the country with, you know, the, the, the best ideas and you get them to focus their attention on the, on the problems of, uh, you know, whether it's uh, regional problems in the case of Ames or national problems in the case of the McDonald Laurie Institute, you get them to think about those problems and then say, look, based on, you know, my lifetime's experience, my, my, my hard thinking, my research uh, uh, about these issues, this would be a, a much better solution than what we're doing now. And so that's, that's really the, the job of think tanks is to kind of uh, stimulate people to rethink the issues and the problems that the country faces and to open their minds to the idea that there might be better solutions than the ones we're trying now. Uh, Brian, prior, prior to the founding of the McDonald Laurie Institute, you headed uh, both the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council and um, and founded the Atlantic Institute of Market Studies in the, uh, I guess in the early '90s. And um, you were the president of the institute on two separate occasions. Can you tell me why you thought Atlantic Canada needed its own think tank when you founded it? Well. Um... You know, uh, um, I, uh, I I knew a Nobel Prize winning economist who one day in um, in a public lecture he gave, somebody said to him, "Look, um, what I, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a young economist. Uh, I, I want to establish myself in my profession. What what advice would you give to me?" And this guy said, uh, oh, that's very easy. He said, find a place with problems and work to solve them. <laughs> uh, and, I, I, you know, I, I, I showed up at Dow and uh, spent five years uh, uh, teaching there. And I, I got to have, I, I like to think, some some experience and some insight into the experiences of Atlantic Canada. And I thought, you know, here's a, here's a place that would perhaps benefit from, from, from some fresh thinking. It certainly got problems, uh, you know, relative to the rest of the country. I, I, I happen to think that every part of Canada is blessed compared to almost all the rest of the world. Uh, most of Atlantic Canada's problems are, are relative to the rest of Canada. Uh, but leaving that aside, um, uh, it seemed to me that Atlantic Canada was struggling with some perennial problems. And, uh, you know, going back to this advice, you know, if you want to establish yourself, find a place with problems and help them solve them. Um, I thought, uh, you know, given the power of ideas to change people's behavior, and um, and if you want to, if you want to make progress with perennial problems, clearly something has to change. Uh, 
this is the whole thing about perennial problems is that they're, they're, you're kind of stuck. And so the question becomes, how do you, how do you unstick a perennial problem? And I think it's with new ideas. And uh, so I thought, um, let's try a think tank that might speak to Atlantic Canadians about, uh, you know, their traditional struggles with um, relative underdevelopment, you know, lower levels of employment, uh, 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 lower levels of economic activity, uh, and not just those things, uh, they're, they're terribly important, but even thinking about, you know, how to stimulate uh, entrepreneurialism and uh, the private sector and all those things that might be an alternative to the traditional strategy that Atlantic Canada had pursued in trying to uh, escape its underdevelopment. Now, uh, for a disclosure, disclosure purposes, I was a member of the Institute's Board of Directors on two separate occasions, actually including uh, once during your tender, Brian, and uh, also at, at the time that the Institute uh, made a decision to merge with the Fraser Institute. Can you tell us about the early challenges by faced by Ames, and perhaps who were the, some of the key individuals involved in launching the institute? I mean, this is this is really for history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, some terribly uh, important people um, helped me to get the institute up and running because you know there was there uh, there was an appetite for the kind of thing that I've described. You know, for this 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 notion that. Getting new ideas in front of people and getting them to, you know, embrace those ideas was um, perhaps a a better solution than continually banging our head against the wall uh, with uh, with the old solution. So um, I thought it was very important to uh, underline the. Uh, non-partisan nature of the Institute, that this was not politics by some other uh, means. And so I went out and I got um, the, the, the leading conservative lawyer in Halifax and the leading liberal lawyer in Halifax. Uh, so that, that was at the time George Cooper, uh, uh, former Tory MP from Halifax, and Bill Mingo, uh, who was, um, you know, a very prominent uh, uh, liberal, uh, I think, both provincially and uh, federally in Halifax. And I I said to them, look, this is what I want to do. And they said, we think this is great. And uh, so they helped me to recruit, you know, a really, uh, I think, impressive board of people who, um, who wanted to support uh, what we were, what we were trying to do. And, uh, you know, they got the, as our first chairman, uh, former CEO of the Bank of Nova Scotia, Sid Ritchie, who's from New Brunswick. And we had, you know, John Risley from Clearwater. And we had, uh, we had, uh, one of the Irvings and we had, uh, you know, Vic Young, who was then the, um, uh, the head of one of the biggest uh, fisheries uh, companies in uh, Newfoundland and uh, Fisheries Products International, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So really we got um, uh, kind of the cream of the, um, of the business class uh, to, to back the Institute and to do so, um, you know, quite publicly by putting their names uh, kind of on the letterhead, if you will. And um, 
there was there was a tremendous amount of goodwill uh, uh, for this effort, not only within uh, within the region, but also nationally. And there were several uh, charitable foundations that uh, you know, uh, national charitable foundations that that agreed with this idea that uh, fresh ideas was was absolutely uh, indispensable in trying to set Atlantic Canada off on a new uh, trajectory. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we got some pretty important support from, uh, from, from those foundations as well as, uh, from, uh, from the corporate sector, uh, you know, uh, a number of, uh, former politicians, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, it was, um, it was a pretty, uh, I think, uh, impressive group that got together to try and, um, give the Institute uh, a, a good start in life. So I think just turning a, to get your insight a little bit into specifically into Atlantic Canada, I know you haven't been here specifically in the region, but I'm sure from your uh, vantage point in Ottawa, you've been studying the national economy in this region. Um, unfortunately, after you left, uh, regional GDP growth slipped to well below 1% per year. I'm not saying there's a, there's causation there, just correlation, yeah, but nevertheless, <laughs> after 2008, we did see a big drop in GDP growth across the region with the exception as Don and I have talked about on numerous occasions, Prince Edward Island. But I guess the question for you would be based on your, your history in the region, based on your knowledge of this region and what you're seeing today, what are the most important economic challenges facing uh, Atlantic Canada right now? Well, I, 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 I think the, I think the issues are still the ones that uh, inspired me to, uh, to launch the Institute. Um, you know, I, I, I happen to think that uh, Atlantic Canada's biggest challenge is is not so much economic; it's cultural and historical. Um, there is a, there is an extent, and uh, you know, I'm, I don't want to overstate this, but I, I happen to think that there is an extent to which people in Atlantic Canada conceive of themselves as victims of powerful forces that they have little control over. And, you know, those powerful forces are mostly, uh, you know, concentrated in uh, uh, what Nova Scotians anyway call uh, Upper Canada. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of looking back and saying, well, you know, before Confederation, we were rich and uh, industrialized and so on. And then, you know, Confederation happened and everything went to hell in a handbag. Um and I, I have to say that this uh, this whole this whole victim uh, narrative is a terrible obstacle to uh, uh, to the institute or to sorry to the region um, uh, escaping from its uh, underdevelopment because you know one of the one of the one of the key characteristics about victimhood is that uh, it, it means that you are not a powerful actor in your own life. You don't have control over the levers that can change things for the better. 
if you're a victim, somebody else has the power and all you can do is kind of wring your hands and point your fingers and complain about how badly treated you are. And the, the fact of the matter is that there are lots of other regions of the world um, uh, that have gone through ups and downs, some of them uh, uh, startling, startlingly uh, uh, difficult. Uh, and been able to turn around their situation through their own efforts. And I, I, I wanted to, if, if, if I did anything, I wanted to uh, try and instill in Atlantic Canadians a sense of, of power and efficacy over their own lives. And um, I, I, I think we made some progress. Uh, I, I like to think that uh, my leaving the region uh, did have some impact uh, uh, and uh, that maybe we were starting to get some purchase on, uh, on, uh, on people's minds uh, while I was there. Uh, but um, uh, I, I, I think the belief is still quite deeply entrenched in Atlantic Canada that um, there's somebody else who has the power. And, um, uh, you know, the region is a victim and is therefore somehow owed compensation. And the compensation takes the form of, you know, things like unemployment insurance and uh, COA and various other things, which, um, contrary to what a lot of people seem to think, I, I, I'm quite convinced uh, are an important part of the explanation for the region's underperformance and not in any way agencies that will help them to escape their underdevelopment. Yeah, so we've talked on this podcast uh, several times, Don, about employment insurance and the fact that there's almost as many today seasonally uh, in seasonal industries as there were 20 years ago. Um, but, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I, I do think that victimhood sometimes does have roots in fact, right, in terms of the trade shifts and some of the things, but we could have that discussion on another day. But I do agree with you that, you know, at some point you have to try to take control of your own destiny. And I think there are voices trying to do that. And obviously uh, you did with Ames um, 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 during your time in the region. But I guess I want to ask you if you think anything has changed in the region since way back when you started the Institute and as you, as you went through that process and ended up in Ottawa, have you saw any positive changes or maybe even negative changes uh, since your time running the think tank? Well, I, I, yeah, I'll say that um, uh, one uh, positive uh, development, uh, which I, I think the Institute had some role to, to play in was um, the uh, arrival in the region of larger numbers of immigrants. You know, the, it, it was it was very hard um, 20, 25 years ago to attract people to the region. And indeed, because the region, uh, you know, had this picture of itself in its mind as being underdeveloped, high unemployment, and so on. They, 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 they were quite actually closed to outsiders because, you know, if you think there aren't enough jobs to go around, new people arriving, they're, they're kind of competitors for what, if, if you believe, if you have a mentality of scarcity, uh, you're, you're going to resent outsiders, right? Because outsiders are arriving and trying to get some share of 
what you already think there's too little of for the people who are there. Uh, and um, we spend a lot of time and, um, and, and thinking at the Institute about how to get people to embrace the idea of newcomers coming to the region. And, and you know, we, we formed a coalition with other groups that were interested in promoting immigration. And, and all of a sudden, the provincial governments were, you know, having strategies to encourage people to move and so on. And um, I, 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 we, were, we were pushing this idea very early on. And uh, I, I think it's uh, I think it's paid off. I, I, I mean, you know, look, uh, Atlantic Canada isn't the 905 around Toronto, uh, but uh, there are visibly uh, uh, more people not born and raised in Atlantic Canada today than there were when I started the Institute. And um, I, I think this is a tremendous uh, benefit for the because the, these are people amongst other things who are not committed to the old way of thinking about the uh, about the region and in fact they've arrived because they don't think of themselves as being in Atlantic Canada they think of themselves as being in Canada and that Canada is a land of opportunity and they want to you know they they, they want to build a life for themselves here and they're willing to do new things I mean Jesus they've left their home country to come here they're willing to do new things. They're willing to think new ways. They're willing to try new things. Uh, and uh, so um, I, I think that's a, a very positive thing that I, I, I've seen in my time since I started the Institute. Uh, Brian, just before we start, uh, change the topic a bit to your current institute, I, I wanted to ask you about the, the, the constant challenge that Ames faced, at least certainly while I was a board member, was funding, which uh, obviously relied mostly on private and corporate donors, uh, some foundations and paid events. Why do you think funding is such a challenge for smaller think tanks like Ames? Well, um, I, 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 I'm, I'm hesitating, Don, because I, I I have to say, when I ran it, I didn't have any problem finding money. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, we went from like when when we started the institute. I opened the doors of the institute with one fifteen thousand dollar check. I, I I bet everything on the institute. Uh, and by the time I left, you know, it was a two million dollar organization, and uh, you know, we had uh, support from around the country. So it can be done. Um, uh, uh, but that said, um, I will say that, and I, I, I hope this doesn't sound self-serving. There aren't many people who can do it. It's hard to do. Uh, and, um, you know, the idea of selling people on the ideas business, <laughs> which is what you have to do if you're running a think tank is not easy. Um, it seems kind of airy-fairy. Uh, and, you know, what I can say about it is that um, I, I, my experience has been that it's very hard to raise money for organizations. 
what you raise money for is for people. You raise you, the the way you get money is to connect with people, is to show them that you believe in what you're doing, that you have enthusiasm and passion for for your ideas, and and you know people with money. Um, you know, they want to give it away to people that they think will do something good with it. And um, I've always found that um, raising money, whether it's for AIMS or for uh, MLI in Ottawa, uh, is mostly a question of getting in the room, sitting down across from them on the, at, at the table and saying, this is why with your money, we can do something important together. Uh, and here's the track record that shows that this, uh, that this works. And um, what can I say? Uh, uh, it, it, it works for me anyway. Well, I, you know, uh, Brian, you had a unique skill sets. I have to tell you, uh, you, you were not only a great researcher, but you were a great fundraiser and, um, you know, for somebody who leads an institute, that is and is still a rare commodity to have both those skills. Well, I, you know, I have to say that I, I, I've I, I've wrestled with this problem many times in the course of my uh, in the course of my career. Um, uh, you know, there are several think tanks uh, in Canada that are are led by really impressive people that succeed. And there are several think tanks in Canada that are that that have never found that kind of leadership, and um, they don't succeed. Uh, and so it goes back to my idea that really at bottom this is this is not about organizations; it's about people, uh, and the skill set that's required in order to be in the ideas business, as I've described it, is actually quite unusual. I won't say it's unique. I, I'm not saying I'm the only person because there are other people in Canada that do it. Uh, but it, it's it's not a common set of skills and aptitudes. So yeah, I, I agree with that. I I think when Ames left, it did leave a bit of a vacuum. I, it, 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 there's not a lot of great sort of think tank activity going on in Atlanta, Canada. APEC is doing pretty good work. I like what Herb Emery is doing with the bond share at UNB, but there's not a ton of it. And I think, um, as I said earlier, I'm a big fan of think tanks. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. You left Ames to establish the new think tank in Ottawa. What was, uh, you talked a little bit earlier about your, uh, why you wanted to establish this institute, but can you tell us a little bit more about what your mandate is, uh, why you called it McDonald Laurier? It might be interesting for the, for the listeners. Uh, and then what are your focus areas uh, at the Institute? Sure. Well, uh, remember that um, I went up to Ottawa uh, from uh, Atlantic Canada to, uh, you know, be this uh, Clifford Clark visiting economist at the Department of Finance. And, um, you know, what, one of my reactions uh, to, to being in Ottawa is to say to myself, uh, you know, gee, this is Canada is a G7 country. Uh, you know, we have a fine tradition of public service. Uh, uh, we have uh, uh, politicians of goodwill in all parties who, you know, they get 
they get to power and they they come to Ottawa and they want to do good things. And I and then I, I looked at what Ottawa was actually doing and I thought, man, these guys are these guys need help. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, I thought about the fact that we were the only G7 country, G7 being the, you know, the, the group of uh, the, the wealthiest uh, industrial countries. So the United States, Britain, Japan, Germany, Italy, Canada, uh, we're the only G7 country that didn't have a national think tank in the national capital thinking about national issues and talking about them with the national electorate and national policymakers and the national media. And I thought that was a big hole in our democratic infrastructure. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, people in every country are uh, kind of parochial. Uh, you know, they, 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 they're... They 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 think about their region maybe more than they think about uh, the, the the country as a whole, um, but it would be my impression that Canadians are maybe just a little more parochial than the average, and and so you know there's tons of people in Canada, tons of think tanks thinking about regional issues. You know, Ames would be a classic example, or the Canada West Foundation, or uh, you know, um, uh, the, the Frontier Center in, uh, in Winnipeg or the Montreal Economic Institute, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, everybody, you know, especially because of the way that uh, um, government has evolved in Canada, you know, you, not to put too fine a point on it, basically the, the evolution of federalism in Canada is that the provinces deliver services and the federal government, uh, you know, maintains the instruments of national sovereignty, national defense, uh, the currency, uh, you know, foreign affairs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Ottawa doesn't have the same direct impact on people's lives that the provinces do, because the provinces provide the education, they provide the health care, they provide the infrastructure. You know, the, if the roads don't work, uh, you, know, you know, it's not Ottawa that, uh, that you have to talk to. And so my experience is that you get you, you can you get a zillion people in Canada that want to talk about regional issues, local issues, provincial issues, uh, but not enough people that want to think about uh, what Ottawa does. But in my view, you know, half the policy in the country is made in Ottawa, uh, you know, whether it's immigration or fiscal policy or monetary policy or uh, you know, defense, national security, a whole series of other things. Uh, those decisions are made in Ottawa. And um, I, I, I thought the think tank community treated Ottawa as an afterthought. And I thought Ottawa is not an afterthought in the influence and the impact that it has on Canadians. Uh, and uh, so uh, we shouldn't we, we shouldn't be neglecting Ottawa. And so I wanted to I wanted to create a think tank that said, uh, our focus in this rather uh, parochial regionalized country is on how to use the national instruments of power in the, in in the interests of Canadians. Uh, and why did I call it the McDonald Laurie Institute? Well, because I, I, I wanted to say a couple of things with the name. Uh, I, I, I wanted to say, 
that this was not a uh, again back to this idea that it is not partisan. It's not uh, is not politics by other means. Uh, I wanted a liberal and a Tory. I wanted an English speaker and a French speaker. Uh, I, I wanted people who had you know helped to form this country in its very earliest stages, and uh, who represented, in my view, uh, a great Canadian political tradition that transcends political parties. Uh, and I, I believe there is such a tradition. Uh, I, I, I co-authored a book about it called The Canadian Century. And um, uh, so, you know, the idea of macdonald Laurie Institute is Ottawa matters. Ottawa has powers that affect the lives of Canadians. Uh, there is a great political tradition that um, we have perhaps... Uh, to some extent, lost sight of, and um, uh, drawing on the resources of that tradition might illuminate, you know, the problems that uh, Canada has and that we we all want to solve. So you have twelve different issue areas on your website, from foreign affairs to energy and justice. Is there one or two that you? would say the Institute is, is really specializing in or putting a lot of focus on these days? Uh, well, um, you know, if you say McDonald-Laurie Institute to, to most people, you know, if they've heard about it at all, the very first thing they'll say is China. Uh, uh, you know, we have, we have three different, uh, if you like, uh, departments or, you know, we, we divide our work up into three main categories. One is foreign affairs, national defense, national security. One is indigenous affairs, and one is other domestic policy. And in that first one, the, the um, foreign affairs, national security, national um, uh, defense, um, uh, you know, we have come to the conclusion that uh, China's rise uh, is probably the most important phenomenon in the geostrategic world uh, of the last uh, 25 years. And, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of the rest of the Western industrialized countries uh, are already, you know, wrestling with what to do about it. Um, I have to say that I think Canada is rather behindhand on this. And, we're wrestling with whether or not we think there's a problem to be dealt with. Uh, I, I, I'm actually quite disturbed by the extent to which uh, policymakers in Ottawa um, have been reluctant to uh, engage with um, China as what I think it is, which is uh, uh, an adversary who uh, is seeking to exploit uh, the openness of our liberal democratic society in order to weaken us and our institutions. And um, the Institute has been quite vocal about this. So do you have any thoughts on why that is? Is it because there's two million plus Chinese uh, heritage citizens living here? Or is it because of the growing economic ties with China? What What is creating that, uh, you know, that uh, reticence in Ottawa? Mm. Well, 
I don't think it's because of the uh, uh, the, the size of the population of uh, Chinese origin, uh, uh, in large part because I actually think that a large part of uh, that population came to Canada because they didn't want to live in China; they wanted to live in Canada, and and they don't they don't want to see Canada changed by a powerful China, uh, you know, bringing uh, pressure and influence to bear on uh, on Canada. They they want Canada to remain what it is because they chose Canada. Uh, so, in fact, my experience of um, people of uh, Chinese ethnic origin uh, is that uh, uh, they are actually made very anxious by Canada's failure to come to grips with the threat that China represents um, because Nobody knows better than people who came to Canada from China what the difference is between Canada and China uh, and why they chose Canada. Um, so I think we have to look elsewhere for uh, the explanation as to why Canada has been uh, reluctant to uh, accept uh, what China really is. And I, I, th I think... The, 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 the best explanation is that um, Canadians are Canadians are kind, well-meaning, earnest people. Uh, they want to think the best of everybody. This has really been my experience of Canadians. And um, they've been reluctant to accept uh, what China has been busy signaling to us, which is that uh, they are not, uh, you know, a well-meaning, uh, ordinary, commercial, economic, diplomatic partner uh, like other countries around the world, but uh, are in fact a, a society determined to project their world, their values uh, onto the rest of us, uh, and. Uh, no, no limits, uh, uh, no, no restrictions, no uh, moral boundaries uh, in their ability to do so. And so we get, uh, you know, hostage diplomacy, uh, you know, the kidnapping of the two Michaels, uh, with which I think everybody is uh, familiar, um, uh, you know, a, a, a form of behavior which you know, the, 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 the rest of the civilized world regards with horror and which China regards as, well, you know, if you don't do what we want, uh, this is what you should expect to happen. Um, now, so you've got the, 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 this reluctance on the part of Canadians, I think, to recognize the, the regime, although I think that's changing. I, 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 I think, amongst other things, the kidnapping of the two Michaels has opened a lot of people's eyes. In addition to that, uh, I, I think Canada has been one of the last places to give up the fantasy that uh, you know a growing China is uh, you know a boundless economic opportunity, and you know we can't afford uh, uh, not to be there. I, don't get me wrong; I, I'm perfectly happy to trade with China, and I'm perfectly happy to have China trade with us. That's that's not the issue. Uh, the issue is that we can't treat them as an ordinary partner if they won't behave like an ordinary partner. Uh, and um, we have been, uh, I think, wrongly treating them as if they are uh, a well-behaved, 
mainstream member of the international community. And that's exactly what they are not. Uh, and we have been very reluctant to bring our uh, policy toward China up to date with China's behavior towards us. Sorry, Don, about the the uh, distraction there, the side <laughs> the side road. But I think that's, that's a, important, and I, I do appreciate Brian's comments on that uh, on that important issue. It is an important one. It's uh, it, it's an issue that I've personally had uh, some concerns about for some time. So that was a uh, that was really useful, Brian. Yeah, you know we're <laughs> we have a ton of questions to ask you, and we do not have enough time to get them all asked. I, uh, we were hoping to be able to get into some of your specific research, Brian. I was wanted to talk about your provincial provincial COVID misery index, which uh, kind of ranks the performance of provinces in terms of protecting their citizens. We really don't have time for that. I wanted to ask you about a recent policy brief by Dr. Sean Watley, um, who was the past president of the Ontario Medical Association, who tackled some of the myths of our Canadian healthcare system, which is appropriate given the focus in the federal campaign. And of course, we wanted to get into uh, a little bit of a discussion about uh, what we should be concerned about, about the uh, post-pandemic uh, um, um, sort of economy. But I think we're going to have to narrow it down. Uh, 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 there's a question I think, David, you might want to ask about deficits and debts. And then we have maybe one more that we can fit in. And uh, that's probably going to be it for today. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's been heavily publicized that the federal government spent about a billion dollars a day or something along those lines in terms of the COVID support. And I think got pretty widespread support conceptually for a huge infusion of federal dollars to support the economy through the pandemic. Uh, but now these deficits and debt levels are extremely high, uh, mirrored a bit or, or masked a bit by low interest rates. Um, uh, so debt servicing costs are not as high maybe as they were in the past. Do you have any concerns, though, related to this increasing uh, debt to GDP ratio across the country? And do you think now that we've we've kind of got a taste for it, do you think there'll be an appetite uh, to continue with large-scale deficit uh, funding provincially and federally uh, to fund health care, child care, environmental, uh, uh, um, uh, climate change initiatives, and so on? Or do you think governments will, will revert back to some sort of uh, historical precedent or even have the markets force, uh, like we saw back in the mid-'90s, some sort of market-led uh, um, uh, uh, fiscal discipline on, on provincial and federal governments? What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, um, you know, our own work at the Institute, including some uh, public opinion uh, polling uh, or supported by some public opinion polling that I saw recently, suggests that, um, you know, the, the public is very much in line with our own thinking at the Institute, which is that, uh, you know, we were completely supportive of the idea that uh, given the, the, the shock uh, created by COVID, uh, and, you know, the public health policies that required uh, lockdown and so on. It was perfectly in order for the, fed for the federal and provincial governments to uh, uh, borrow money, to, to tide us over this, um, uh, this, this terrible disruption to our, to our lives. Um, but at the same time, uh, Canadians uh, are, are of the view that uh, we spent too much. It's not that uh, there, there was no objection in principle to what we did. But, you know, once even once you accept the principle, that doesn't mean that just whatever you want to do is uh, is justified. And, um, 
in fact, uh, Dawn asked about the um, the uh, COVID misery index. Uh, you know, one of the things that the uh, the COVID misery index um, shows us, because we do an international uh, COVID misery index, which compares Canada's performance with other countries, and then we do a provincial misery index, which looks at the the performance of the different provinces relative to each other. What the international index shows us is that uh, every other industrialized country that we compare ourselves to spent less than we did, and many of them got better results than we did. So uh, in other words, what happened is Canada spent over the odds on on, uh, the the COVID transition and got poor results uh, out of it. So, you know, we spent uh, more money than we needed to, to poor effect. Uh, who, who's in favor of that? I mean, <laughs> uh, so, um, I mean, there are circumstances in which you have to borrow money. Uh, that, that, that's perfectly uh, in order. Uh, but you don't want to spend, you don't want to borrow more than you need to. And you don't want to uh, pile up debt that, that didn't achieve anything for you. So, um, uh, you ask me, uh, you know, will people continue with this level of borrowing? Um, well, you know, yeah, they will. Uh, uh, maybe not exactly at this level, uh, but, you know, when people start to see, hey, you know, there really is a free lunch. Look at look at all the money we can borrow. And uh, we borrowed it all for, for COVID and the world didn't come to an end. So, uh, let's just keep doing it. Uh, the, the the problem is once you start, it's very easy to turn on the taps and it's very hard to turn them off. That was the experience of the of the uh, '90s that you uh, that you referred to. It was a huge national effort. Once we realized that uh, there, in fact, is no free lunch, and uh, you know the when you let the borrowing get out of control, uh, it starts to build up its own momentum. Uh, which, you know, nobody intended. But uh, you, you might recall that uh, by the time we got to, um, to the crisis in Canada, uh, you know, we were being mocked in the Wall Street Journal as a third world country. And, you know, uh, currency traders referred to, our, uh, to the Canadian dollar as the northern peso. Uh, and, you know, eventually the chickens come home to roost. Uh, you're absolutely right that uh, low interest rates right now, you know, that's not going to happen uh, immediately, but uh, we can already see uh, inflation starting to uh, take off. And uh, when inflation starts to take off, that's when interest rates start to rise. And it becomes, we've enjoyed a, a, a virtuous cycle in which we've been able to borrow with impunity. When, 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 when the ship turns, uh, all of those factors are going to turn against us, uh, and uh, I can't I can't predict exactly when that will happen. But uh, if we don't change our behavior, it is guaranteed to happen. Brian, uh, just I, I can't let you get away without uh, talking, getting your opinion about an issue that's uh, disproportionately important to Atlantic Canada, and that's the question of equalization. There's a lot of discussion now about the fairness of equalization, particularly from the West, and the need to uh, renegotiate equalization is coming up in the next uh, couple of years, I believe. 
What do you expect uh, to be the outcome of those negotiations and what will the likely impact be on Atlantic Canada, in your opinion? Yeah, uh, uh, well, look, this is a very complicated uh, topic, which uh, we don't have time to dig into right now. But I, I, let, me, let me just say this about it. Uh, my view is that equalization has, uh, on balance, not served the interests of Atlantic Canada. I think it creates perverse incentives which uh, reward uh, the provinces in, in Atlantic Canada for maintaining high taxation rates, big government spending, and um, uh, the conditions which I think have contributed to um, uh, the, 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 the persistence of underdevelopment in the region. Uh, I've, I've long made the case that equalization reform would be in the interest, not just of the people who pay the bills, which, uh, you know, is the, 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 the so-called wealthy provinces, but the recipient provinces. I, I, I actually think we need to have a strategy to get people, uh, to get provinces off equalization uh, and uh, create the conditions in which provinces are able to pay their own way so that, um, uh, you know, the citizens of those uh, provinces are making decisions at election time and uh, in between elections, uh, making choices based on, um, you know, the, the idea that whatever policy choices their provincial government is making, they have to pay the, they have to pay the tab. As long as they can pass an important part of the cost of their decisions onto other people, I think they will make bad decisions. Uh, I, I, and I, I don't say that in any way to criticize Atlantic Canadians. I think it's true of anybody. So you can make somebody else pay the bill. Uh, the results are almost always not in the interest of the people who pay, who write the checks, and also not in the interest of the people who allegedly benefit from the money. Brian, you know, this has been a really uh, great conversation. I wish we had more time, um, uh, but I want to uh, sort of uh, thank you for your time, obviously. I uh, also wanted to encourage listeners who want to find out more about the McDonald laurier Institute to visit your website. Uh, your your research is available to the public, and it's important for Canadians to inform themselves about the policy alternatives and to become more educated about the kinds of policies that will uh, be to the benefit of our citizens. So thanks again for being part of this podcast. Well, thank you, uh, Don and David. And, um, you know, if there are questions we didn't get to talk about, invite me back. I'd be, I'd be very happy to, to do this again. Well, I, you know, I think we, we have a couple of topics that we only skimmed over that we could spend an entire podcast on, and we will certainly be able to do that in the future. That'd be great. Thanks again. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. Mark Legere and Tyler McLean helped produce this episode. You can subscribe to the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.